The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, indeed majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, We come before you, O Lord, asking that you would bless our time together as we study uh, the history of your church, even in this small representation of it, in American Presbyterianism. Lord, show us, Father, we pray, your faithfulness and your goodness to your people through your providence and through your grace. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so uh, this... Yeah, <laughs> well, you've missed a lot of the class, apparently. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to review all that, um, but where we, what we are going to do is we're going to, uh, we're going to pick up uh, this morning and cover, in particular, the history of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Again, we're kind of coming back and zooming in on the OPC, and we're looking at the OPC from the years roughly 1973 to about the 2000s. So this was probably as close as we'll get. It's probably as close as it's safe to get when you're talking about American, or particularly Presbyterian church history. Um, and, and even in this, we'll, we'll hear names of people who are, who are still alive. You know, so that's always a little bit dangerous. Um, yeah, anyway, we'll try, to, uh, we'll try to handle those appropriately. But uh, anyway, so particularly we're going to be focusing on the OPC. And we're going to pick up then with something we had referenced last week, and that is uh, joining and receiving. Or this, that's the way we talk about this effort that there was uh, in the early uh, 1970s, and even actually a little bit before that, back into the 1960s, uh, on the part of a number of conservative American Presbyterian bodies to unite together. So as you can see, um, <laughs> one might be tempted to suggest that we're due for some unions um, although, as, as Tim noted, uh, unions have, a, uh, have an interesting way of not producing one church, but they end up producing, you know, four churches, right? If you have a, a union between two bodies, you almost always have a, a group from one body that doesn't want to join and a group from the other body that doesn't want to join. So unions uh, can themselves add to the confusion uh, of the, the denominational web that we've got here before us. Uh, but in this case, um, that's, that's not really true. Uh, we had this desire, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church that is, uh, to join uh, a larger conservative body. Um, that's something that I don't think is really present in the OPC as much as it was at that time. And that's not a comment as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think that that's, that's a comment on the way we think things are right now in the landscape. There's not really good options in that sense for us to come together with another body, perhaps, uh, at least as easy, as easily as it looked like it would have been uh, back at this time. Uh, but, well, let, let's, go ahead and, let's go ahead and move forward before I say that. So, at this period, again, we're talking about the 60s and 70s, and we'll, we'll think uh, particularly here, we'll zoom in on 1961. At this point, as you can see on the, the, the diagram here, you have a number of bodies in existence who have a lot in common with one another, right? So we have the OPC up here, and we have the Bible Presbyterian Church under that. 
And then under that, we have the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, right? And we've talked about the history there. The Bible Presbyterian Church splits, and part of that Bible Presbyterian split becomes the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And then what, what happens is in 1965, uh, there's a merger between the Evangelical Presbyterians and the New Light, the General Synod of the Reformed Presbyterians. And they become the RPCES, the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod. Yes, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that you need to see it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it would help you, honestly. I, I mostly put it up there for, uh, for effect. Uh, <laughs> just, you know, anyway. It's had its effect. Maybe Tim can, like, green screen me. There's a lot of white back here. I don't know if we can do something and we can, like, a weatherman. Anyway. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll be done with that. I won't, I won't try to point out anything over there anymore. Uh, but even, even before this merger happens, there is interest uh, in the, the Bible Presbyterian split that becomes the Evangelical Presbyterians in joining uh, with the OPC. There's an interest in that. And so already, as early as 1961, those Bible Presbyterians who have become the Evangelical Presbyterians now have some interest in possibly merging back with the OPC and basically, in their minds, healing the rift that had happened in 1937 when the Bibles had left the OPC. Uh, Now, that doesn't happen at that point, but they end up joining, as we just mentioned, with the Reformed Presbyterians, and they become the RPCES. But that desire to unite OPC continues, and it expresses itself in an attempted uh, merger between the RPCES and the OPC, and this uh, comes to a head uh, in 1975. Now, just to give you some idea of the size of the RPCES at this point, um, we, we're talking about around 13,000 people. Okay, so this is a small. This is a small denomination. At this point, a little smaller than the OPC is at this period. The OPC is around maybe 20,000 people at this period in time. So we're talking about an incredibly small group of people, which, again, emphasizes why you may want to merge. It's difficult to do things when you only have you know, that amount of people in your denomination. You don't have the money. You don't have the resources. You don't have the personnel. You certainly don't have the, the kind of spread as far as location of congregations and things like that to be able to, to do a lot of things that you, you might want to do as a denomination and should want to do as a denomination. You can think of missions efforts and things like this. And so there's a good reason, not just for the sake of the unity of the church, but also practically to pursue some of these mergers that are talked about with these fairly small denominations at this period. Now, the, the RPCES did still have some of the distinctives of the Bible Presbyterian Church. So that, that's important to note here. They did still have, for instance, a modified version of the larger catechism, even after the merger uh, that, take, that takes place there in 65. So there were, um, and that, by the way, the modifications were made there to make it easier for men to hold premillennial convictions. Uh, and you can... If you remember back to Tim's talk on the Bible Presbyterians, you understand that that was a big issue in 1937 uh, with the Bibles was thing, you know, alcohol, uh, fundamentalism more generally, the consumption of alcohol and kind of a, a more of a fundamentalist mindset more generally, uh, but also premillennialism. 
And so the, the evangelicals had been carrying with them uh, through, you know, since 1937, uh, that modified version of the standards. And that does become uh, a bit of a hiccup here with the OPC. But really, um, interestingly, not much of one. Many in the OPC were willing to overlook some of these confessional revisions, minor confessional revisions, uh, for the sake of unity. Now, there were people who weren't, um, but many, many were. Uh, what, what takes place, unfortunately, though, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, uh, is that the OPC and the RPCES, they decide to hold, in 1975, uh, joint meetings of their General Assembly or their General Synod, in the case of the RPCES. And they held those at Geneva College in uh, Pennsylvania. Many of you are probably familiar with Geneva College. That's the denominational college of the RPCNA. Uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America. And they held these meetings simultaneously, and actually the arrangement they had was that uh, both of the General Assemblies would go into separate rooms, they would vote on whether or not they would merge, and then they would meet in the hallway, the moderators of the General Assembly would meet in the hallway and, and basically say, either we're one church or we're not. Uh, before this takes place, uh, there's a sermon preached uh, by Francis Schaeffer, I'm sure many of you have heard of Francis Schaeffer, right? So of Labrie fame, uh, apologist, had been a student at Westminster, uh, was a, you know, associated with Machen, Van Til, people like this early, early on. Uh, Schaeffer preaches a sermon on the unity of the church. Apparently it was a good sermon. Everybody left thinking, all right, we're going to get together. Interestingly enough, in the RPCES Synod, Francis Schaeffer stands up and in the minds of at least some in the OPC torpedoes the union and suggests that it's actually maybe not a good idea to unite with the OPC. Right after preaching this sermon, it left many in the OPC's heads spinning a little bit. So what takes place is the moderators go out into the hallway and the OPC votes to join. And the RPCES votes by a small margin not to join. You can imagine it would probably be a little bit awkward to walk around campus after that. Um, but it was a great disappointment. It was a great disappointment for the church, for the OPC in particular. Now, that's not to knock Schaefer. Uh, the reason for this is somewhat unclear but Daryl Hart suggests, and I think this is probably a, a good idea, that the reason why some of these men were unwilling to unite with the OPC is because they considered the OPC to be basically the same church they left in 1936. And they suspected that while everybody was willing to get together at the moment, that union, you know, it may not be as perfect as it looked on paper. And so there were men in the Bible, coming from that Bible Presbyterian tradition, who basically thought that if we get into the OPC, or actually they were going to merge into one church and call themselves the Reformed Presbyterian Church, very original, um, they thought they were going to split again. They thought the same issues fundamentally were probably still present. So this is the first time that the OPC votes itself out of existence. This is going to happen twice more uh, in just a matter of years here. And we're going to see it, it goes, well, it doesn't go well. <laughs> so, 
anyway, it, it's a it's a it's a moment that should be reflected on. I think here. Um, also interesting to note, this is just a, a comment. Uh, many in the PCA today, especially conservative PCA men, uh, will suggest one of the reasons for the diversity that's in the PCA uh, is because they received the RPCES. And that's an interesting, that's an interesting idea. And, and you can keep that in the back of your head. We'll think about whether or not we think that's actually true uh, to the end of the lesson. But it's an interesting idea nonetheless. They, they believed that that RPCES contingent had a certain diversity that became problematic, or at least it, it flavored uh, the PCA and, and made it, in some ways, into the denomination it is today. But it's an interesting thing to consider in light of, of an episode such as this one. So that's the first attempt at union that we see here. The second attempt is facilitated by the PCA. This is in 1981. Now, the PCA is already in existence when this takes place, and the PCA and the RPCES and the OPC are all talking together. This is all, this, this ecumenical movement, if you will, is all kind of swirling around. There's a desire to unite amongst a number of different bodies. Um, the RPCES, the OPC, failed to do it a few years later, Right, 1981, the PCA decides, well, the way to do this is not for the OPC and the RPCES to join and then for them to join the PCA, but rather it's for all three churches to seek to merge together at one time. Um, having been to presbytery meetings, this seems like a bad idea, but okay, um, maybe, maybe it wasn't. <laughs> the, the, that's a good, yeah, the motive is simplicity. Uh, the motive is let's get it over with now and let's not draw it out and let's not have, you know, fights between, you know, the RPCES and the OPC on this side and the RPCES and the PCA on this side and the OPC and the PCA. So instead of dealing with all the various issues that the denominations might have amongst each other, let's just kind of throw all our hats in the same ring and we'll just, we'll just jump in together and we'll all come in. Um, so that, that's the idea. Unfortunately, or fortunately, like I said, I'll, I'll leave that up to you, uh, this doesn't work either. So, uh, at the general assemblies of the respective churches, um, every church votes in favor of the merger. So, uh, the PCA votes to receive RPCES at their general assembly, and the PCA general assembly also votes to receive the OPC. That's the same, the same is the case for all the other churches, they all vote, basically, let's do it, let's all get together. Now, where does the problem arise? When such a massive decision as a church union is discussed in a general assembly, we've noted this, uh, we've seen this happen already, uh, but the GA doesn't just vote on it, all the presbyteries have to vote on it. Now, in the OPC, the presbyteries pass the union. In the RPCES, the presbyteries pass the union this time, they were willing to get in. The PCA presbyteries did not pass the union of the churches. And it was close. I think, at my, I think my count was four or five presbyteries that voted against merger with the OPC. They were okay with the RPCES, but they didn't want the OPC. Now here's a question. 
Was it because the OPC was too conservative or too liberal? What, what's your take on that? Go ahead. Both sides of the equation. Both sides of the equation. You know, I sus- oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, too conservative. Too conservative. Who said both? You said both, kind of, yeah. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think there were probably some Presbyterians who thought the OPC was too conservative. And there were other Presbyterians that actually were concerned that the, the OPC was too loose. Now, there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is a controversy that was happening at the time at Westminster Seminary involving this man. Uh, Norman Shepard. Anybody here ever heard of Norm Shepard? Okay, a number of, a number of folks have heard of Norm Shepard. So Norm Shepard was a professor at Westminster Seminary. Now Westminster at this time had become much less um, tightly affiliated with the OPC. The board of Westminster had men from the OPC, it had men from the PCA on it, it may have had men from other denominations on it, I'm not sure about that. Maybe Tim would know that, but... Do what? Uh, I, don't worry about it. See how faithfully my, my, my co-laborer attends to my lessons here. That's okay. Anyway. Um, yeah, so, so at that time, there was a diversity of men on the board of Westminster Seminary already. So uh, <laughs> Norm Shepard began to teach an understanding of justification that was, to say the least, concerning for a number of people. Uh, Interestingly, uh, this doesn't become an issue until a man comes for ordination uh, in the Presbytery of Ohio of the OPC in 1975. And in the course of his ordination at ZAM, uh, people begin to become very concerned about his understanding of justification. Uh, and they begin to say, hey, what's, what's going on here? And this, you know, I, I, I was recently licensed. Lord willing, I'll be ordained at some point in the future. Um, I can see myself saying something like this. He just said, hey, this is what I was taught at seminary. <laughs> Don't get mad at me. You know, this is what they told me I should say. Um, uh, so Norm Shepard had his professor. And uh, this, this raised serious alarm bells for some of the men there in the Presbytery of Ohio. And so they began to explore, as well as other men in, in the Presbytery of Philadelphia after this came to light, began to grow concerned about the teachings of Norm Shepard. At Westminster Seminary, other people began to grow concerned about the teachings of Norm Shepard. One was Meredith Klein. Uh, another, though, a man who was on the board of the seminary was a man named Paul Settle. Now, if you know your PCA history, you know, that's, that's a name that's significant in PCA history. This was one of the man, men who was involved in the founding of the PCA, and he was someone who had a lot of influence in the PCA. And Paul Settle was one of the men on the board of Westminster Seminary who was troubled uh, by the fact, first, that Westminster could not muster enough strength, if you will, to get rid of Norm Shepard, but also that the OPC Presbyterian after examining his views, uh, basically failed to come to any conclusion on the matter. Now, I'll read you some things that Norm Shepard believed here, um, because I think it's important. This comes from his uh, 
list of theses on justification. Uh, Number 20 is the Pauline affirmation in Romans 2.13, the doers of the law will be justified, is not in the sense that there is no person who falls into that class, but in the sense that the faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ will be justified. Yeah, it was Norm Shepard's understanding that, yes, you enter into a state of justification by faith, but you maintain that state of justification by your works. He explicitly says these kinds of things. And the Presbyterian Philadelphia at that time could not bring themselves to basically to defrock him. Now, you can understand... <laughs> Why someone like Paul Settle might go back to men in the PCA? Yep. My friend, I have a friend who was taught by Lord Shepherd. Mm. And Lord Shepherd greatly influenced the testimony. Yes, yes. I wasn't going to say that. But <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, he did. Yep. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think so either. He did go into the Christian Reformed Church. That's correct. Yeah. Right. Right. Defend Shepherd. Yeah. Yes. 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 And there, there were men, men who we would all respect. Yes. Say it again. Yeah. So, so what Pastor Hughes was saying is that there are men out there, uh, including one of his friends. I think he's referring to Jeff Thomas. Maybe I shouldn't say that. I have to cut that. Um, there are men out there who would defend Shepard in the sense that they would say, Shepard was not good at articulating what he was saying, I think. Or perhaps he was unwilling to articulate it the way people wanted him to articulate it, but fundamentally was orthodox in his view of justification. Um, that certainly was a view that was prevalent, and I think there's still people out there who do believe that. Um, there were men, uh, such as Richard Gaffin, who taught at Westminster for many years and who's well-respected by uh, almost all who know him and read him, I think, um, who did defend Norm Shepard. Um, 
Shepard also, though, and I think this is important, was not extremely clear. He wouldn't make statements like I just read for a number of years. Uh, so I, I think Shepard himself knew in some ways that what he was saying was going to be a problem. Um, I, I could be wrong about that. But, you know, I mentioned earlier it's difficult when you get into these discussions involving people who were still alive. And, and, you know, and here we see some of it. People who we would respect who had a different view of this controversy. I personally think uh, that this was a serious problem. And, but the reason why I, I, I bring it up now is to point out that this is one of the reasons that's given by many who voted against the OPC being received by the PCA. Uh, this is one of the reasons they gave, was Norm Shepard and the failure of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church to deal with what they saw, rightly or wrongly, as an errant view of justification, I believe rightly. Um, it's no mistake, I don't believe, that Norm Shepard's thinking... Uh, would go on to be influential in places like the Federal Vision Movement later. Um, there's a door that's opened at this point uh, for certain types of articulation of the doctrine of justification. I believe Norm Shepard may have had issue with the Covenant of Works as well, but I'm not I'm not sure about that, so I won't I won't go there. So, well, you could read a book like uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And uh, Murray does not articulate things the way Norm Shepard does. Uh, Murray, though, <laughs> Murray does become influential on men who begin the movement that comes to be known as the Federal Vision Movement for a number of reasons. And we could talk about that a bit later, perhaps. This probably isn't the time to get into that, but he, he did. Go ahead, Pastor Holes. Nope, I don't think so either. Absolutely not. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's helpful. Um, I would also note that John Murray uh, always affirmed the imputation of the active and passive uh, obedience of Christ, and that's something you can't do and hold views such as Shepherd and the Federal Vision Men would later. Anyway, before we slip totally into historical theology, I should probably move on. It, I'm sorry, the Press of Philadelphia. Yes, correct. So I bring this up as a place where, um, you know, 
our, our presupposition might be because of the state of things today that the PCA didn't want us because we were like hardcore right-wing, you know, confessional Presbyterians and they didn't want that. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> that might not be the case. That might be a flattering story to tell ourselves if we have a certain perspective, but uh, yeah, there, were, there were maybe legitimate reasons why the PCA was a little concerned to, to take us in. Um, okay. So let, let me move on from there, though, before we get bogged down totally in it. Uh, this, this controversy does, though, uh, point out something that I think is important for us to note. Uh, and if you want to read about that, you, you can in uh, this book, Between the Times. I think we've, we've uh, made mention of that book a couple of times um, by Daryl Hart. But, but more broadly, this controversy exposes the fact that Westminster Seminary and the OPC were growing apart during this period. Now, I didn't go to Westminster Seminary. Uh, my sister-in-law goes to Westminster Seminary, but I don't think that gives me a, a good ground to stand on to go and critique Westminster Seminary. I'm not going to go too much into the history there, but I still know that there were several men, not just Shepherd. Shepherd may have been, um, maybe we could call it a right-wing expression of Westminster going in a, in a non-confessional direction, if you, if you adopt the, the view that I, I personally hold. But um, there were other issues there. The first would have been someone like Cohn, who was teaching at Westminster at this time. Uh, Cohn was uh, a proponent of what we would probably call today a contextualization on the mission field. And he was an Orthodox Presbyterian minister. But his understanding of missions, uh, both foreign missions, and then that, that began to influence home missions, looked to many in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church an awful lot like it was headed towards some form of cultural syncretism. Uh, There was willingness to give, a willingness to change worship, to change uh, the way you you do church, all all of these kinds of things, uh, for the purposes of missionary activity. And and Harvey Cohn was promoting this at Westminster. He was also, like I said, he was an OPC minister. Man, another OPC minister at Westminster around this time, uh, named Jack Miller. Has anybody heard that name, Jack Miller? Okay. I'm starting to see that the same people raise their hands when I ask that question. Anyway, uh, and some, several of them have been to seminary. So, <laughs> um, Jack Miller, OPC minister, he was the founder of what became known as the New Life Movement uh, in the OPC. Not going to go far down that rabbit hole either. Um, he wrote book called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. I think a lot of people uh, <laughs> a lot of people saw that maybe as having direct application to the OPC. Uh, maybe they didn't even necessarily disagree with the idea that the OPC was at times ingrown, but the, the, the ideas proposed for outgrowing that ingrownness definitely rubbed people the wrong way. Um, these men who were associated with the New Life movement eventually, as we're going to see, will leave the OPC, as well as many of the men who were involved in these controversies at Westminster. So Norm Shepard goes to the CRC. We noted that already. Uh, Ed Clowney, who was there at that time and was one of the men who really was hesitant to dismiss Shepard, uh, he would go, does anybody know? To the PCA, right? So you're going to see a number of these men leave who were involved in, in these discussions, um, which is, is interesting for a variety of reasons. 
uh, and some kind of in both directions, if you will. Okay, so all of that contributes in some way to the state of things in the early 80s and to the fact that the PCA doesn't bring the OPC in. And I don't doubt that there were some in the PCA who saw the OPC as being too narrow. That's the story you would get, for instance, from a book like this. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this one yet or not, For a Continuing Church, The Roots of the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, This book uh, covers the foundations of the PCA. And at several points in this book, the author makes the point that men in the PCA uh, saw more connection between themselves and a figure like Billy Graham than they did between themselves and a figure like J. Gresson Machen. So there was an element. There was an element there in the PCA that that did think the OPC was too narrow. But I think you, you hit it right on the head. It was on both sides. Anyway, regardless, uh, the attempt fails. The attempt fails. So, they don't give up, though. <laughs> Not easily. Uh, once they had union on the mind, they, they pursued it for, for many, many years. And there is a third and a final attempt to unite with the PCA. Uh, and this attempt happens in 1986. Now, I say the first attempt was an attempt to unite with the PCA. I want to be clear about that. That was an attempt to unite with the RPCES, but everybody knew, knew which direction this was headed. This was going towards a larger merger. So I say that, but I need to caveat that a little bit. Now, there is a third attempt, though. The third and final attempt uh, was in 1986. Uh, in 1986, the OPC uh, passed a resolution uh, to join the PCA, and the PCA uh, themselves passed a resolution for the OPC to join them, but the OPC passed this only with a bare majority in the General Assembly. So the majority of the men were willing, once again, to vote themselves out of existence, uh, but they didn't get the two-thirds majority. And so that time, the issue wasn't with the PCA, and it wasn't with the RPCES, it was actually with the OPC. And uh, there are many reasons that people have put forward for why uh, the OPC didn't vote at this time to join the PCA. I think one that's compelling is, is that uh, 1986 was the 50th anniversary of the OPC. And there was a significant amount of celebration going on in the OPC, uh, celebrating the history of the OPC. The distinctive character of the OPC was being celebrated. Um, that's not exactly a, a situation that's conducive to then say, okay, look at how, uh, you know, look at our church, its history, and look at all the great things that have been associated with it. All right, now let's all go and vote to, uh, to vote ourselves out of existence and join another body. You know, it's not exactly the situation you would want to have if you were advocating for something like that. Um, but there, you know, there were other reasons as well. There were men in the OPC who were beginning to see things in the PCA that concerned them, particularly uh, they saw a broad kind of evangelical vision in the PCA, and they saw that there were churches in the PCA that were really indistinguishable from their non-denominational or their Southern Baptist cousins in some ways. And they didn't, they didn't want to be associated with that. They were scared that their Reformed uh, distinctives would be watered down by joining the PCA. So there were, there were men who, who felt that way as well. And, uh, and some who worked very hard to keep the merger from happening, actually. But we won't, again, we won't name names of people who were still uh, living and of people who still have relatives in the church, so at least as much as possible. Okay, so that's something of the history of the joining and receiving. Before I move on, 
Well, no, let me, let me go ahead and move on, because if I don't, I don't think we'll get to the rest of our material. Let me uh, discuss, Tim, Tim had on the, on the schedule for today uh, a discussion of theonomy as a controversy that happened in the OPC. Um, I'm going to run very quickly through this material. It is important for the history of the OP to know some of this, this uh, history, but um, in some ways, many of the men involved, most intimately involved with this movement, uh, ended up, as is often the case in the OP, they, they left eventually. Um, especially Rush Dooney, we'll see that here. Uh, so theonomy, uh, theonomy is a movement started by a man named R.J. Rush Dooney. Uh, Rush Dooney is an interesting character. He, he comes from an Armenian Presbyterian background. His father was an Armenian Presbyterian minister and had to flee uh, from the Armenian genocide. So his family comes to the United States uh, with this uh, family history, if you will, in the background. They had to flee from the persecution of the uh, Turks against the Christian Armenians. Uh, R.J. Yashtuni uh, becomes himself a minister in the PCUSA. 1947, he begins work amongst the Duck Valley Indians and uh, in an Indian reservation, I believe, in Northern California or Nevada. Tim, do you know that? Right off the Nevada, okay. Uh, and he reads there his first Cornelius Van Til book, The New Modernism. And Rush Dooney is taken with Van Til, uh, absolutely smitten uh, with his thinking. And Rush Dooney uh, soon thereafter, well, not soon thereafter, but he, he begins to study and to read and I believe to correspond, I know, to correspond with Van Til. And eventually, in uh, 1958, Rush Dooney is received into the OPC. And he ministers in congregations in California. He ministers at an OP congregation in Santa Cruz, California. Until 1962. Uh, Rush Dooney begins during this period, right before and after he gets into the OPC, he really cranks up his writing. Uh, and so he begins to develop his ideas. Uh, he publishes a book called By What Standard with, uh, with Presbyterian and Reform Publishing. Um, begins to uh, teach the distinctive doctrines which would come to be known as theonomy. Particular understanding of God's law and how it should apply uh, to civil society. Again, I'm not going to go too far into that because that could be a long conversation. Um, but uh, Rush Dooney, uh, eventually though, like I said, I'm moving quickly, uh, he gets tired of the OPC. Now, in light of our sermon this morning, I think that this is a little bit interesting to note. Uh, Rush Dooney actually chafed under the Westminster Standards when he was in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And this is a really fascinating thing to think about because most people would associate Rush Dooney with his tome, the Institute of Biblical, um, oh goodness, Institute of Biblical Law. Um, and you would think, you know, this is a guy who demands very rigid, careful adherence to the law of God. He did not like the teaching of the Westminster Standards in a number of places with regards to the law. In particular, he did not like the teaching of Shorter and Larger Catechism on the Sabbath. And he came into conflict in the Presbytery in California ministers who were pushing him uh, to adopt a more confessional view of the Sabbath. It's, it's kind of interesting to think about. He eventually leaves, after he leaves the OPC, his, his son writes a, a, a little thing about this, and he says at one point that the OPC is basically a pharisaical church because of its understanding of the law. I... I I, I personally, maybe it's because I know a little bit about Rishni, I personally think that's actually kind of funny. Um, uh, I don't think many people would put the OP in the category of pharisaical and then 
say Rush Dooney is not, but, you know, that's just me. Um, so Rush Dooney leaves the OPC. Interesting, does anybody know where Rush Dooney ends up ecclesiastically? I know Tim knows, but... He, nope. Nope. I don't think you're going to get it. He becomes a high church Anglican. Yes. It's interesting. And a number of theonomic churches end up doing the same thing. The PCA church in Tyler, Texas, that becomes very closely associated with theonomy. Uh, there were men like James Jordan at that church, um, and, uh, and North, Gary North, and others. Um, James Jordan is a name that would become known and very famous or infamous uh, in the Federal Vision controversy. Um, these men actually were here at this church at Westminster PCA, in Texas, this church in 1987 joins uh, the American Episcopal Church, which is a continuing Anglican body. So they leave uh, the Presbyterian Church and they become uh, Episcopalian, which is just, uh, it's an interesting thing to note. There are different streams of theonomy, which you point out here. The RPCUS is more, we can maybe call it the Southern Stream, with Joe Moorcraft and guys like that. And, of course, that body splinters at some point, and then you have the RPC-US, you have the RPC-GA, right? And then you have the RPC-US uh, Hanover Synod. And uh, those, the Hanover Synod still maybe exist. Is that right? Yeah, okay, so the Hanover Synod exists. None of the rest of those bodies exist, I don't believe. Uh, they've all, they've all um, folded now. You came, you, you have a background from Chalcedon, right? So Chalcedon's now in the Vanguard Presbytery, is that right? Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. So that that those those movements kind of uh, peter out eventually, um, regardless of of what you think of them. Um, uh, theonomy doesn't grab hold in the OPC. I think the way Rush Dooney thought it might, especially as he saw it being kind of the the natural development of Van Til's teaching. There were a lot of people who didn't see that, um, and amillennialism has been in some ways the default position of the OPC, and that, that didn't really mesh with a theonomic post-millennial view uh, that was present with these men. Um, yes? Correct, yeah, Van Til was non-millennialist, that's right. Um, oh, yes, right, theonomy generally, yeah, right, right, right. Um, there was a man, though, who was very, very influential in the OPC, I think he still is in some ways, who was a theonomist and, and was probably second under uh, Rush Dooney as far as being influential in that movement, and that was Greg Monson. Many of you probably have heard or are aware of some of Greg Monson's material. Now, this is an interesting thing. This connects with this congregation, and many of us here are uh, at least know of Tony Curto. Um, what time do we have here? If you need to get your children, please go. I'm going to finish up the last little bit here. Um, but if you need to get your children, sorry. Um, uh, Bonson ministered in, in California. Uh, he ministered at an OPC church there uh, called Covenant Community OPC, uh, which actually ends up uh, combining with a Congregationalist church in the same area that was pastored by um, a friend of this congregation, Tony Curto. And Dr. Curto and, and Bonson uh, worked together. They co-labor there as associate pastors. I don't know how long they did that. Did, did Matt or David, do you guys know how long they, they worked together? Yeah, um, but anyway, uh, so that's, a, that's an interesting connection that we, we personally have uh, in some ways to that 
to that movement. Um, okay, I, I did not cover that very thoroughly uh, because I wanted to get to this material right here. I want to talk just very, very, very briefly uh, about the Presbytery of the Southeast of the OPC. And I think we're going to have to cut it, actually. Yes. I was really hoping nobody's going to ask me for that. Um, well, let me say, with that, we're going to end. <laughs> um, and we'll, we'll pick back out at another time. No, I, I'll, I'll try. I'll try. Um, you know, Bonson, uh, if you read Theonomy and Christian Ethics, at the beginning of that book, he, he says something like, you know, Theonomy is the, uh, what is it, consistent application of God's law to modern something. I, I, I can't remember exactly how he defines it. I'm sorry. Um, what's important to note about it is it has a unique perspective on the abiding validity of the judicial laws of Israel for modern society. That's what's really significant. So uh, the confession states that uh, the civil law expired uh, with the nation, except insofar as it applies by general equity, so that phrase, general equity, is, is interpreted by theonomists uh, very, very broadly and thoroughly. And you can see that in a work like uh, Rush Dooney's Institutes of Biblical... Um, oh, goodness, I keep forgetting it. What is it? Institutes of Biblical Law. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I, I would start there. Um, if you want to talk more about that, I guess we can... I can try later. All right, let's be done. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll, try to, we'll try to cram in the rest of what we have here for this lesson next time. All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, even as we reflect upon um, incidents in the church's history that are both uh, confusing and uh, controversial. Uh, we thank you, O Lord, that you have preserved your church, that you have protected her, you have given her... Uh, men who were able to lead her through trying times. We pray, O Father, that you would continue to lead us as we know you will, because you are a faithful shepherd of your people, and we thank you for that. And we ask, O Father, that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we would grow more in our love for you and our love for one another, and also in our purity, and even in our understanding of the scripture. We ask, O Lord, that you would give us humble hearts, and that you would also give us wisdom as we consider and discuss these things of the past. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.